You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media, Thursday, July 11th. And it is a crazy, raucous week, never a dull moment. Certainly a lot going on here. And now is a time and a need for true, independent conservative thought, independent of any party, personality. We focus on the issues that are important. And boy, are there a lot of issues important. Tons of stuff going on in the court since we spoke yesterday. Obviously, the president has this big announcement on the census later today. We'll cover that tomorrow. But for today, I want to really do something special we, we've we never had on this program a sitting Border Patrol agent, at least from the southern border. We had one from the northern border on. Uh, just to, to give us a sense of what is going on from a Border Patrol man's perspective. Um, we hear a lot about the needs, wants, and desires of the illegal aliens, which in itself really plays into the hands of the brutal Mexican cartels. But... What we don't hear about is what it's like to be a border agent, to be placed in an impossible situation when you are charged with defending the nation's borders, defending the American people from incursions, be it public charge, be it terrorism, be it um, you know gangs and drugs. That is their job, and yet suddenly you're transformed into being babysitters, um, being exposed to all sorts of health risks, dangers, and then it's not like you're doing it in you know La La Land where it's safe. You're engaging in non-combatant operations, humanitarian operations in a dangerous zone. How you know they're just at the river at night, the in the tall cane growing at the river where you have dangerous gun battles right on the other side with the cartels. They have no idea what's going to jump them. Tough rules of engagement. Um, Literally almost like kind of our soldiers overseas, the way I talk about engaging in social work in a combat zone, (laughs) kind of the worst mix of all, because it's not just that you're, um, you know, diverted from your mission, but you're not in a combat forward operating position, but you're being placed almost in a situation where you're, you're, you're threatened. And rather than, you know, the nation appreciating that you get endless news stories and even members of Congress calling them Nazis running concentration camps. And no one ever says, Hey, you know, why don't you walk in their shoes for a day? And what would you do? And that's what we're going to try to do today. Walk in the shoes of a border agent. Sergio A. Tinoco is a border agent, a supervisor in the Rio Grande Valley, the hardest hit part of the border. Um, He's the author of a very important book. I know a lot of you guys are going on vacation now. So if you want a good book to read on your vacation, I'm going to link to this on show notes from Amazon. Proud American, the migrant soldier and agent. You know, Sergio grew up as a young boy in in uh, far Texas. Um, his his mother was in in Mexico, and he was actually raised by his maternal grandparents. He had to do hard labor on a farm in Michigan, and 
you know, he he worked his way up and joined the military, served for 10 years in, in places like Bosnia, and then he became a border agent. And, you know, now he's thrust in the center of some of the worst trafficked areas with, you know, the Gulf Cartel and CDN uh, flowing in bad stuff here. And I wanted to get his exclusive story. So before I filibuster this too much and give too much of an opening monologue, I want to introduce our special guest. Hey, Sergio, I really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Daniel. Yeah, and, and, and certainly I really you know appreciate this because it's, it's a rare treat to hear from someone who's not retired and actually at the front lines. Could you give us a sense of just in general? I always found this fascinating what it's like to be patrolling at night in the dark, dense river bends, knowing the dangers lurking around and, you know, kind of what you always have to worry about in those scenarios. So to be very honest with you, Daniel, and with your listeners, it's I've always told agents because I used to be an instructor with the Border Patrol as well. And I've always trained agents and, and have told them, and we all come to this agreement where we can't have those thoughts going in. Mm. We can think about it after our shift is over. We can think about it once we're home and our spouses tell us that they were concerned about us, that they prayed for us, our families or whatnot. That's when we actually think about it. And, and yes, we can actually look back and reflect on whatever situation we encountered the previous shift or the previous night. And and then realize and say, holy cow, you know, this we're doing a, a tough job. We're out here by ourselves. Uh, I myself, the biggest group that I encountered by myself was 54 individuals. And I have to say, you know, I, I was I was quite uh, stirred for a moment. Uh, thankfully, the training that the agency gives us and uh, my military background, I was able to, to hold strong and, and be able to detain the entire group until help arrived. And so that's the mindset that we go into any situation. We go in that although our numbers have dwindled down in the at the actual border doing enforcement mission, uh, we go into it, into any scenario, knowing in the back of our minds that sooner or later our backup is going to arrive. Hopefully sooner than later, right? But uh, that's the mindset we have to take. We, we cannot go to work thinking something bad is going to happen to us. We just can't. We you know, that's a very paralyzed. profound thought, what you just said with the with the group. Um, it, it's very easy for me to be an armchair general and, and you know some of these members of Congress that they treat the Border Patrol like the aggressor and the illegals like the victims. And, you know, they focus on harmless people. But, I mean, you have no idea what you're encountering. Just this fiscal year, Border Patrol, just the people they caught, 19,000 with convictions already in the U.S. And you're one man, you're in a remote desert or in your area, the River Valley, and you got 54 guys approaching you. <laughs> so there's, there's a whole lot to that, right, Daniel? I mean, I grew up a very poor migrant worker here at the uh, Texas border in a border town. My mom still lived in Mexico my entire life, pretty much, until I was able to leave the military and actually petition for her to become a legal resident. Uh, so I know the life because I grew up so poor and I grew up around this type of stuff. I can understand these individuals, right? So what we need the public and the rest of the nation to understand, and even our lawmakers, is that these people, right, the, these immigrants that are coming through, they have lost everything themselves. 
they they either owe money to the cartel, they owe money to a coyote. You know, God only knows what has happened to their daughters and the trip to the border. And now all of a sudden they have just one man or woman in a green uniform. And that is the last person they have to go through for in their minds to reach freedom. That's a very dangerous predicament for us mm. to be in. Because these folks, wow. like I said, they've lost everything. They're pinned up against the wall, per se. And in their last moment of frustration, anything can happen. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that that, that was beautifully said. I, I Again, I've covered this issue for years. I've My audience is witness. I've talked about this for hours upon hours upon hours. And I never expressed what you just did. And that's why I love having a border agent on. You know, to me, I always think of, okay, okay, who's MS-13? Who's a known gang member? But you're saying something even more than that. I mean, even people that generally, they're not prone to criminality. But just anyone, if you place so many people in such a desperate scenario, I know there's been cases on the interior in the United States where you have illegals who are caught burglarizing homes that it turned out they weren't kind of like career criminals, but they were desperate to pay off the piso and they had to get money. So you're the last guy there and there's, you know, there could be a lot of belligerence. So could you speak about what even in my circles we don't report on enough? that there's this growing danger of border patrol agents being assaulted. So we, I work in the area in South Texas where we, of course we have the Rio Grande river as our border, as our actual border. So of course we have a riverine unit, a boat crew that patrols up and down the river. Mind you, the border is directly somewhere in the center or quasi center of that river. So, we ourselves cannot and our agents cannot engage with anyone on the Mexican riverbank. We just can't. Our rules of engagement do not allow that. The cartels know this. The smugglers know this. And of course, there's a lot of high brush here in South Texas. And daily, we have smugglers, we have coyotes that will throw rocks at our riverine crews, at our agents, do everything they possibly can to harm them and to hurt them because they want them out of the area so that they can either bring their illicit drugs through or they can bring in the illegal immigrants across the river. So the moment that happens, we're left at a standstill pretty much. We either have to quickly assess what just took place and get out of the area so for our own agent safety. Because like I said, we don't know what's behind that tree where the smuggler is hiding. We don't know what's behind that brush where the coyote is hiding, so we can't shoot into that country. That would be causing an international incident, and our rules of engagement just do not allow that. So we have to take those hits, try to either pepper them with some type of CS gas pellets to where they they can hit a tree or anything nearby where the culprit is at, and hopefully make them disperse as well. this is a, a, a dangerous task that we ha- that we encounter every single day. So, so you're saying, I mean, I've been underselling the problem on my show. Until now, I've explained to the problem to people that, look, you know, the cartels, the smugglers, they'll shove a bunch of, let's say, Central American families at border agents, know that then they're, they're tied down with the lawfare, the processing, yada, yada. And then in the gaps that they create with, you know, just the, stri- the line so stretched thin, they'll bring in their people. You're saying... They'll even confront you directly um, and, you know, not try to get in when you're not there. They'll try to chase you away. Correct. 
they have to. So th- this is part of all their tactics. This is just one of many. I mean, remember, it's already been pushed out to Congress in one of these last congressional hearings. Uh, one of our chiefs up in D.C. said that we were down to about 30 percent manpower actually doing the enforcement action, the border security mission. That's 30 percent. Remember, we have 2,000 border miles with Mexico. 30 percent of that is 600. So does that equate that we're actually effectively only patrolling 600 miles? So what's coming through the other 1,400 miles of border? That, and that's the huge issue. The cartels will do what they can. They'll send in large groups of immigrants across the river to hold us up. One, we already had a loss of manpower. So whatever, if I have 10 agents, I have to use three or four to take care of a group of 100. So that just leaves me with six agents doing an enforcement mission that to cover a large period of the river border. And it, and it puts us in a very bad spot. Wait, so that sounds even worse than 30%. I mean, because that sounds like you could have six, eight agents for what, like 50, 60 miles. Correct. It, it's just, it, it, it's daunting and, it, and it's, it, it, it's part of the challenges that we face daily, right? Uh, Congress continues to, after seven months of pleading with them, they, they finally decided to to pass some type of budget to to help us monetarily with uh, this crisis that we've been having. After seven months of pleading with them, but mind you, we have facilities, detention facilities for the, the processing, right? So Congress is now thinking, okay, you're you're telling us that you're overcrowded. We're seeing images that you're overcrowded, so we're going to give you another facility. So you're giving us another facility, but you're not giving us a manpower to run that facility. So what does that do to my 30% that I have out in the field? I have to take more manpower off of that. So, and again, what is happening or what is coming across through all the areas that we're not actually covering ourselves? So this is what bothers me. And, and I, we made this case when Congress was passing the border bill. I looked at the border bill. I said, where's the border? In, in other words, so... You know, obviously, once we've allowed this in, so you have the humanitarian aspect, fine, I get it, but all it's doing is care for illegal immigrants. Now, you might think, now that they're here, it's imperative, but there is nothing about the border. So the way I understand it, Section 2A of the Secure Fence Act, this is 2006, it was passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, signed into law. A lot of people know about the provision of no less than 850 miles of double-layer fencing should be constructed. Okay, but there's another provision that says, the Secretary of DHS shall take all actions, this is within 18 months of passage, quote, to achieve and maintain operational control over the entire international land and maritime borders of the U.S., and Section 2B defines operational control as, quote, the prevention of all unlawful entries into the U.S., including entries by terrorists, other unlawful aliens, instruments, very interesting, instruments of terrorism, narcotics, and other contraband. So... Where's the beef? I mean, we're we're doing nothing about that. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I mean, they they've given us, of course, DOD is helping us out a lot. They they actually are uh, make up a, a huge portion of our eyes and ears per se, right? There are listening and observation posts, but that's all they can do. They can observe, watch a group coming through, or watch traffic taking place, and then they have to report it to us. And again, how many agents do I actually have on the river? I don't have that many. So even I'm if they report 30%. to you, you know, if if the cartels take, are throwing, me a, yeah, yes, it could take me a while to, to get to it. 
because on the other end of that same area, I'm dealing with a group of 100 individuals that just came through. So, you know, it's a very tough act to balance. And quite frankly, I, I don't think there's any balancing left to do. Is <laughs> we're, we're at that breaking point. It and must be very leads- frustrating that you come from a military mindset. You spend 10 years in the military. And I guess what always bothered me about the political directives given to border agents, even before this, but certainly now, is that like I start off the show, you're placing them with a humanitarian and then sometimes maybe law enforcement, domestic law enforcement mindset in what's often almost a quasi gray zone military conflict in that, like you said, I mean, you got dangerous dudes throwing, you know, rocks at you guys. So, I mean, even if we want to agreed that border patrol should be humanitarian, let's, let's just see that point. But they're forgetting the fact that it's not some sort of la-la land where people just come over to seek a better life. And, you know, again, forgetting about our immigration laws, let's just say we didn't have any and we'll just bring anyone in. Why is there no focus on countering the cartels? That's a good question. I mean, uh, sadly, that's something that's way above my level of mm-hmm. uh, expertise and, and uh, as, as something that I can actually lend a voice to. Uh, sure. I know that we do have pro- I know that we do have programs out there where that are dealing with the cartels, uh, but again, it's something way above my pay sure. grade and, and not something that I have disability of. I can say that it, the actions taking place now or the traffic that we're seeing, our agents are just completely overwhelmed. They're exhausted because not only are they exhausted out in the field, they're exhausted inside the stations processing. Uh, they're exhausted with all the rhetoric that's coming down through wow. uh, um, the media and Congress. I mean, our own congressional leaders are vilifying our agents. These are America's front line. The men and women wow. really holding the front line are being vilified. And what does that do? I mean, it hurts you. It hurts us all. Because not for example, right, the last, the most evil statement ever made that Border Patrol is running concentration camps. I have kids. All of us have kids. We're all regular people. We're regular Joes and Janes. We have kids. We have spouses that also hear these comments. Our kids' friends hear this, these comments. And they get bullied in school. They get bullied at the playground. They get bullied at parties. Wow. Our spouses have to hear it at their own workspaces. And, I mean, it, it's just a sad scene for my wife or for my co-worker's husband to go into their work office. And the very first question, instead of saying good morning, is, hey, is it true that your husband is, is gassing these immigrants or killing these immigrants and, and raping them here at the border? I mean, how do you even start your day off like that? And so I'm supposed to come home at the end of my shift, a 10-hour shift, mind you, uh, of just dealing with hundreds and hundreds of bodies every single day. I'm exhausted physically. I'm exhausted mentally. I'm exhausted emotionally. I want to come home, and it's supposed to be my shelter, right? My fortress of solitude, I guess, and, and say, here I can relax and unwind. No, 
I can't no more because now I have to come home and hear what my kids were told by their friends that dad or mom is doing out in the field. I have to hear from my wife or my coworkers have to hear from their husbands and their wives what they themselves are doing out in the field. And now we have to correct that. So at what point does the agent truly relax and unwind? Congress has truly taken that away from us and they have wow. placed us in a very, very dark spot. I, I mean, every day now, there's there's a hearing yesterday and there's one tomorrow. Um, you know, one of them was titled Kids in Cages. And I'm thinking there's not a single hearing with 70,000 Americans dying, mainly of fentanyl-laced drugs, about the effects on how the cartels are able to get in the drugs, how they're able to get in previously deported aliens, how they're able to get in SIAs. Nothing. It's like our security doesn't matter. Again, current law, and I don't want to get too political. I'm not going to mention names, but I will just say it was 18 to 80 to 19 past the Senate. Very, very bipartisan with some very prominent people from both parties voting it. The Secure Fence Act to mandate that they achieve operational control over the entire international land border. That is your mission pursuant to the most recent laws um, to prevent unlawful aliens, instruments of narcotics, contraband terrorism. And what I find so amazing is there's one thing if you guys did that. I mean, still, you shouldn't be called names. That's your job. But ironically, you're falling on your sword for the illegal immigrants. You're saving thousands. Borstar saves thousands of lives. You're um, every day, you know, if you have the opportunity to get a criminal, sometimes you got to let it go, my understanding, because you got to deal with these guys. And, you know, so much care and everything well and beyond, honestly, in my view, what the social compact of our country dictates you know because we're again our government is ultimately for the citizenry of this country and you still it's not enough i i just i can't wrap my arms around that that's that's so true and you know it it, it just like i said earlier it, this rhetoric has placed us in a very dark area in a very dark situation our agents are the most compassionate agents out there they, we give up our water. We give up our food. We care for these kids. We care for the moms. Do you not, I mean, just place yourselves, or I ask your, your listeners to place themselves just in a room overcrowded with kids crying, moms and dads pleading, hey, I'm hurting. I need to go to the doctor. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We're about to take you to the hospital. Mind you, these are things that we are not designed for. Yep. But because of our own compassion, our own human nature, of course, we deal with it. We're, we're trying to assess with it as best as possible. And it's just that's part of the emotional exhaustion that, that we experience daily, you know. Uh, and then to hear all these evil things being said about us, it, it, it's just it undermines our mission. It undermines all the work we're doing. It undermines the challenges that we face. And mind you, these challenges are, again, created by those up above us that have the power to release money, have the power to give ICE and HHS bed space that they need so that we, Border Patrol, can have an output. I need that output so that my facilities are not overcrowded. But since ICE and HHS have had their bed space decreased, it's diminished that output for me. So now all I can do is take in 
but I can't push anything out unless I release them out to the community, which of course now gives me flack from the communities. And it's, it's just a vicious, vicious yep. whirlwind that the agents are in. Yeah, you're, you're in a no win. And I'm not going to get too into the legal and political stuff today, but you know, you're being told certain things policy wise, whether it's the courts, whether it's policy, whether it's some people saying the law dictates it. In my view, it's usually not the case. Um, but you guys got to follow that. And it's okay. So on the one hand, I have to secure our border. That's almost like a quasi military mission. Again, counter the cartels, narcotics, contraband, illegal aliens, but then, no, you have to care for them. But then, you know, you have to release them. Well, but you're endangering Americans. Well, but you're not caring for the illegals now. So to me, what what is so hurtful is that not only are you forced to change your mission and really work as like a private NGO for Central America rather than a law enforcement protecting Americans, it's that you know that while you are doing that, while you are caring for the migrants – and, and I'm not accusing you guys, you, you, it's not your fault, but unwittingly, you are almost like conduits of the cartels to literally complete their criminal conspiracy and enable, almost enable the end result that they're able to get in so many terrible, terrible people with, you know, that ICE has removed sexual assaults. And I, I mean, I'm amazed at how you, what you tell me, like eight people for 60 miles that you guys were able to get 19,000 convicted criminals um, what is it in the first nine months of the fiscal year? So that's that's certainly amazing, and that's not talked about enough. Well, that just lends to to the spirit and the heart of the agents. I mean, we we all took this oath, and and we we carried it out as best we can. And uh, I mean, every day, I still want to feel good about my job, so I'm still going to go out there. And I'm going to be a, a, you know the best agent possible, and I'm going to do what I can to stop drugs from coming in, do what I can to stop criminal aliens from coming in, pedophiles, sex offenders, murderers, whatever. I'm going to be that person. And that goes for every single agent that's out on the line right now. And whether it be a woman or a man, that oath drives us, that that spirit within us drives us to continue to do this job. Now, has it become more of a challenge? Of course it has. It's sort of like waking up in the morning and your whole body is sore. You know, you wake up a little bit slower than you normally would, but you still drive on. And it's just, it's just overwhelming. I can't speak enough to, to the heart and soul of the agents right now, to, to everything that they're facing, everything that they're being challenged with, everything that, that is being thrown at them, whether it's emotional stress, physical stress, harmed by the cartels and the smugglers, everything. They're catching it from every which direction possible. And these folks are still pushing through to try and fulfill this mission. It's just, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing that they're doing. So well, you, you talked earlier about the, um, the rocking attacks coming really from the Mexican side and how no matter what, uh, evidently we're concerned about Mexican sovereignty, but not our own, even though the cartels control it anyway. And you guys can't do anything. Evidently, the military can't do anything either. So that goes on. But there's also assaults, even, you know, just on our side. Um, I'm hearing a lot, you know, from rioting a little bit in the McAllen Center, 
processing center, you know, single adults piling up there. They get very belligerent. Um, so isn't it true that you guys have a hard time getting federal prosecutors to even take the cases of assaults on Border Patrol agents that they'll even consider prosecution? That in itself it, it is definitely a challenge that we face. And, and of course, it only adds to the, the I guess, the morale of our agents, of all of us. And it, it, it does hurt us because we would want for, if any of us is assaulted, we would want that individual to be punished. Uh, I'm sure that if a, a citizen and in a central part of America or even in the northern part of America or anywhere else that does not wear green, I'm sure that if that individual was assaulted, everybody in that community would be seeking justice. And that's all, all our, our agents, that's all we ask for. We ask for the exact same thing that any of the citizens that we're protecting would ask for. And and sadly, we don't get that as often as we would like. And, and, and look, and, and we're not trying to insinuate that there's problems with prosecutors. I mean, I think the whole system, the same way you guys are just you know totally tapped out, you know, obviously they're tapped out. They don't have enough resources on the prosecuting side. So it could be, you know, that's also a resource issue and not necessarily insidious that there's like, you know, I, I don't care about the agents, but I, I do know, you know, we're always told um, by certainly my sources that often you guys have to go to Texas DPS uh, at a state level to get prosecutions. But could you take this to the next level and just explain a little bit to us about what you're up against in terms of um, prosecutions of, you know, let's say, you know, someone comes in, they're previously deported, they have a criminal record, and you want to refer them to prosecution, that there's a six-hour rule that you guys um, have to, you know, get, get get everything in, in place to obtain sign advisement of rights and sworn statements and then a 48 hour limit to have your case signed sealed and delivered to the AUSAs to get prosecutions otherwise these these guys don't get prosecuted so that that's part of the of the process right we do have uh, time uh, restrictions and, and some restraints there where with our case reporting we have to meet certain guidelines uh, of course, the, the huge influx that we're currently experiencing that we have been experiencing pretty much for a whole year now uh, hurts us in that regard. Uh, one, we're completely out of processing stations. We're complete, we just have no room for additional casework to be done. So either we stop processing individuals that we just apprehended, regular family units and unaccompanied kids or even single adults to work on this assault. And so we do do that. We we try to prioritize those things as best as possible. But at the end of the day, it's just, it becomes someone else's, uh, I guess, burden. And they decide whether or not it's going to be prosecuted for whatever reason and whatever uh, restrictions they themselves might have. But that that's what lends to, to the downfall of our morale to where uh, eventually you'll start hearing agents say, why even report this assault? Nothing's going to happen, and and that's a very a very bad situation to be in, uh, because you want to still encourage all our agents to to report everything, right? And like I said, we're, 
they're just in a very tough spot and they right now they're not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in any way shape or form and aren't aren't there also threshold requirements like for smuggling um 1324 violations you catch a smuggler they have to be smuggling a certain number of people so for a lot of cases uh, especially at our checkpoints we do get hundreds and hundreds of cases uh, every month. And, and of course, it could be just one person smuggling two individuals. And a lot of times they'll tell us, okay, that's not enough people to be smuggling so we can prosecute this individual. Or they'll say, still work the case, uh, but we're not going to prosecute, but at least now we have a paper trail on this individual. And if he or she does it again, then we can go after them. And so, it, again, it's just a, a workload type thing. And it's, it's just a, another factor that attributes to the morale of the agents. Wow. So, so you guys absolutely know that because of the policies in place and because, therefore, it incentivizes not just illegal immigration, but – I mean, I've heard this for years from retired border agents about the cartels knowing the exact thresholds with the drugs – so now I guess you have that with the with the smuggling, human smuggling too, and they'll game it out to get the right amount. The juveniles, they'll get to do it. They'll get the exact type of people that they know won't be prosecuted. And you guys know you're often releasing criminal aliens and you can't get them prosecuted. Um, and again, I'm not trying to blame the U.S. attorneys because, again, I think it's just it, they don't have enough people but just to bring out the point that when you're dealing with the demands of people like AOC to try to double down and make these five star things and and do everything you can about illegals it's not a, it's 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 not a it's not a vacuum it's not a one issue in a vacuum that is causing your resources to be diverted and bad people are getting away is that correct Correct. That's correct. Okay. I mean, I just wanted to m- m- make that clear again. I, I don't. I don't know enough, and I, I do have a friend that is a high-ranking um, official in the you know Association for Assistant U.S. Attorneys, and I know he's told me he has um, high confidence in the prosecutors in the Southern District of Texas, federal prosecutors. I mean, I, I looked up their numbers. They have almost as many cases as the Southern District of New York, the most in the country. And I'm sure they don't have as many resources as New York. Um, so a, a lot of it is probably just a resource issue. But again, it's another downstream factor from, you know, Border Patrol being driven off. So you can't make the referrals in time. But then again, because of that, there's more of them coming because they know they can get away and it's kind of like a death death spiral. So correct. So it's, it's, uh, it's just another one of those small vicious cycles that we have to deal with uh, on a daily basis. Our agents by no means uh, will stop. They will not make a decision and say, you know what? I'm not going to do my job today. They're not, you know, uh, these cases, we, we still pursue them every single day whenever we do get them. Uh, and then, of course, we leave it to the powers of be for whatever reason, whether an individual is prosecuted or not, is beyond us at that point. Uh, does it hurt us uh, with morale? Yes, it does. But that doesn't mean in any way, shape or form that our agents going to stop doing their job. And they don't. And of course, it, it does not. I'm not undermining 
the legal system itself, our U.S. attorneys or whatnot, uh, who knows what the reasonings are behind a prosecution not taking place, aside from the uh, not having enough, uh, not smuggling enough narcotics or not smuggling enough illegal aliens or wanting to start a, a, a paper trail on a certain individual to try and, and possibly catch the bigger fish, per se, uh, we're still going to continue to get these sure. cases uh, every single day. We're still going to be as vigilant as can be and, and, and try to protect America on a daily basis. Sure, absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing. Why it's happening, whether they have the resources or not, is a different story. But that it is happening is important to get out there, that – you know, again, this is not a zero-sum game of how much sympathy do you have for migrants in need. It's that there's a lot of very evil people. I mean, I'm not saying this. The head of um, the, gosh, Interior and Security Minister of Guatemala, Mario Duarte, said this in a speech recently that you have a phenomenon of, of NGOs and groups and certainly working with smugglers and cartels. Uh, weaponizing migrants in need. That was his word, weaponizing migrants in need. And um, as a result of this, you're having people, you know, gang members, criminals, all sorts of people getting away. And, and could you confirm with us that it's not just the runners? In other words, even among those who surrender, you'll do a check and you'll find criminal records here and there. Are you referring to the family units we're encountering, Daniel? Or, yeah, I mean, people that surrender among those groups, the large groups who surrender. Correct. So right now there's a huge loophole, and every migrant that we interview, every immigrant that we interview, uh, straight out tells us, whether it's a woman or, or a man, they tell us straight out, hey, it's being put out in our native country, and if we bring a child to the border, Within time, you know, you'll end up releasing us. And so here I am. It's a loophole. And so now you're you're going to this human trafficking thing. You're going into kids being rented out uh, for this purpose alone. Uh, we have caught here in RGV, and I can't attest for the rest of the border, but in RGV, we have caught MS-13 gang members, convicted MS-13 gang members come in with kids trying to exploit that family unit loophole. Because that's what they're being told, that it's their free ticket into the U.S. And, and God only knows when they'll be at, a, at an immigration uh, court hearing. And wow. because of that, we're seeing these, these groups come through. We're seeing these individuals come through in an attempt to, to come through as a, as a fake or a fraudulent family unit. We're even seeing adults that uh, might appear to be 16 or 17 years old come in with uh, another kid's birth certificate to try and use the unaccompanied child loophole as well. And I mean, we encounter these things on a daily basis. That's a big deal because so you're saying again, it's not just the runners, you know, okay, the cartel throws, you know, family units at you and then they get in, in their runners, you know, people that have criminal records that don't want to meet agents. You're saying the, the um, policies, the catch and release is so severe now that you'll have a guy that knows knows it will show up on your system that he has a conviction and he still thinks that by coming with a kid, he could openly come and he'll be released. That is the mindset, yes. That's the mindset we're encountering. That's the, the traffic we're encountering at, at this time. Is their mindset wrong? Been, no, it's not because that's exactly <laughs> what 
uh, I mean, that's exactly, that's a fact. No, I know, that but, but what, I mean, I mean, what I mean to say is, could you confirm with us that there have been cases where they have indeed succeeded? I, I don't think, so it's important to remember that the large numbers, right? We, we can't possibly, we just can't possibly interview a thousand family units in 24 hour period. We just can't. It, it, it's, but of the ones that we are able to interview thoroughly for the purposes of fraud, we have encountered uh, a large amount of those being fraudulent. And mm. so I can't truthfully answer your question. I, uh, I can assume that that is the case. Sure. Because, like I said, we can't just do a thorough investigation on every single family unit, not, not with regards to fraud. It, it, our numbers are just extremely too high. And, sure. of course, we have seen cases. Well, no, you know what? We have seen cases where we've seen the same kid come in with different parents. And so it has happened already. Uh, we've seen the kid come in with uh, an individual in the past, and then here we are months later, the kid has come in with a, a different man, now claiming that that person is his or her father. And so this is where we found out about the kids being rented out. And, and so, yes, it has been successful for them. Sure, but but I'm, I'm, I'm going a step further. I'm talking about even when it, it's not fraud, it could totally be their kid. Um, you have a guy that had was convicted of drug trafficking in America or gang affiliation or something like that, comes in, it's his right name, he has a kid, and he says, my name is this, and it is his name, and, and it is his kid, but you see, um, when you run the background check, you see he had a conviction here. Are some, I mean, I'm assuming if someone has a murder con- conviction, we're not, you know, that none of those have gotten away, but have there been some with convictions that we've just been forced to release? I don't believe so, Daniel. I, okay. I don't believe so. Okay. I, I, I do believe that because we do run records checks on everybody, and I do believe that every time we do see these cases, uh, we have been able to uh, prevent their entry. Okay, yeah. I mean, because that, that's important, at least, you know, the ones that we get. Um, real quick, uh, just, you know, we're running out of time here, and you've been so generous with all your time. Um, so I just want to remind everyone that obviously Sergio is a sitting Border Patrol agent. He's active duty. Um, you know, so this is, yeah, has to be totally, you know, nonpartisan. His job is to uphold the laws and to, you know, execute the policies of DHS, of Homeland Security, his employer. Um, you know, there's no, there's no political affiliation here. There's no ideology here. So I just, you know, if, if I ask you a question, you're like, you know, you want to decline, just say decline, we'll move on. Cause I don't know, you know, again, I don't want to get into something that you, you don't want to talk about, but, um, what I, I hear that, you know, obviously we have the family unit issue where because of court decisions, certain policies, um, they can't be held, which has encouraged them to come more. And, you know, again, this vicious cycle we're talking about. But what I'm hearing is that we're having problem even with single adults now, especially if they're from non from from other than Mexico countries where they're not just returned immediately that they're piling up at the McAllen station and it's way over capacity and that evidently ICE doesn't have the funds or wherewithal or planes, commercial flights to get them back. 
and how you have to detail, you know, some of horse patrol, you know, Bortac to to deal with them and that that's becoming a big problem, even single adults. Could you just talk in general about the single adult problem? Definitely. So that, that lends back to the, the same cycle we've been discussing with regards to ICE not being granted the funds or the bed space to be able to hold these individuals or to take custody of them from us, right? Uh, They are the output that we have. And of course that output has been cut off for months already. Uh, since early December, uh, our USBP, CBP, and even DHS leadership has been asking Congress for additional funds, has been asking for additional bed space. And of course, the bed space has actually been decreased, and the funds have been held for a period of about seven months. So when ICE is no longer able to take individuals from us because of the lack of funds, because of the lack of bed space, that of course means we have to hold them. And single adults is the the last straw, right? Uh, if I were to release a single adult, that means what? That means we're at completely open borders. Might as well send all our agents home and, yeah. and quit the border security mission altogether. So we don't want to do that. We do not want to reach that, that breaking point. We do not want to be broken arrow per se. And so, of course, we are forced because of the system, because of the lack of funds, because of the lack of bed space, we are forced to hold these individuals longer periods of time. Without that output, I have to. I have to, Daniel. And the people need to understand that there's no other recourse other than for me to release them. And we seriously do not want that to happen. Sure. The moment that happens, the moment that happens, we've lost our border altogether. And, and and that's getting very close. So, I mean, again, um, you know, and, 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 you know, obviously you don't comment on political stuff, but we have spoken a lot about these budget bills and, you know, they all talked about, oh, we solved the border problem, but all they did is fund more humanitarian care for the illegal aliens themselves. So what you're telling us is that if, if you don't fund more enforcement and then or even ICE detention space and ICE de- deportation, I mean, even for single adults. So then what that does is all it does is it marshals more of your resources into caring for them. Um, but there's no I mean, certainly no more money placed on the line for CBP. I mean, not, there was not a dime in the bill for that. Um, but also at the back end, if Border Patrol, if, if ICE can't detain them i guess well there's two steps they can't deport quickly enough and they also don't have enough bed space quickly enough so that piles up and then it piles up on you the chain rea- chain reaction and then you guys are pretty close to the breaking point with single adults correct because uh, again uh what what they're doing is they're they're placing a band-aid on an issue and of course it's it's a gushing wound you don't place a band-aid on a gushing wound uh they're they're saying okay you're saying usbp you're saying that uh, you're overcrowded at these facilities we're seeing all these horrific images coming out or whatnot even the ones that cbp released months ago were even probably worse uh so we're going to give you another facility okay but you're still not doing anything with regards to additional bed space for ice which is what we truly need if you really want to help border patrol then you must help ice and you must help health and human services because without them being helped, 
I'm still in the same predicament. All you're doing is, is making my gushing wound even bigger uh, because I'm still having to hold all these individuals. I, ha- I still have no output for them, and I need that. Without it, uh, yep. it this problem is only going to continue to grow and get worse. Exactly. And, and you guys don't have the deport. I mean, you might have expedited removal from Mexican single adults, right? But not, but if it's non contiguous countries, I mean, you got to have ICE fly them out. I mean, so you guys don't have that capability. Correct. We have, correct. We have to turn them over to ICE. We have to uh, give custody over to ICE for that to take place. Sure. And since that, since that is not able to happen at, at this juncture, then. We're forced to hold them, and so yes, wow. the overcrowdedness does and will continue. Wow, that's that that's wild. But but I, I want to be very clear here, um, and I forget the statute. But tell me if I'm wrong. I thought you know because a lot of people you know they'll throw you know the language about oh you're holding these camps and everything. I always thought that unless they had some sort of criminal record you know, some sort of security or other security problem, they could always voluntarily depart. I don't know if you could comment on that, but um, I was under the impression that just if, if it's just a illegal entry, they could voluntarily depart. For Mexican nationals, that is the case, yes. Okay, so you're saying, I, I, again, I guess it's probably a logistical issue. If, you, if they're from other countries, then it's just more of a logistical problem. So again, th- this is not even the policy loopholes, the court loopholes, the florists, the this or that, you're saying this is the problem that once you've incentivized all this, this becomes a resource problem even for people where there's no policy loophole. They totally could be deported any time. <laughs> there's just no Correct. planes. <laughs> Correct. Without the, the adequate funding and the bed spacing for ICE to be able to take custody of these individuals from us and then continue that, that deportation or that removal process, the whole chain is stopped. The whole process is, is at a standstill. And it, all it's doing is ballooning up in the hands of Border Patrol. Now, I, I hope you could cheer me up a little bit in terms of giving me a little bit of a rosier picture than I get. But my impression that I get watching Border Patrol is that it almost seems like their operations are almost dictated by the media. Uh, it's literally, it, it's not a matter of strategically, okay, the Gulf cartel is doing this, or there's problems with the smugglers here. Okay, you know, w- this this area needs operational control. We're going to have Bortac here, Horse Patrol here, Riverine there, um, ATVs there. That it's almost like day-to-day there's no specific strategy, or has it not broken that far yet? No, it, 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 our operations continue to run as, as we deem them uh, necessary. You know, uh, the strategy that we have and the operational picture that we have on a daily basis, uh, of course, it fluctuates with with the traffic and what the cartels are doing daily. So we maintain that. Uh, I would never state that the media is is controlling our mindset or our operations because it it doesn't. Do our agents hear it and do we hear it? Of course we do. That doesn't mean it's going to dictate anything I do out in the field. And sadly, uh, what is dictating, and not necessarily our operations, but just the fact that that this overcrowdedness takes place and that we continue to be overwhelmed by it, is Congress just not listening to Border Patrol, Congress not listening to CBP or DHS leadership. And, I mean, come on. 
for seven months, we pleaded for more funds. For seven months, we pleaded for additional beds to continue this process of removal and deportation. And what's taking so long? It, it, it's not the media, because we've been face-to-face with our congressional leadership, pleading with them, begging them for, for this, these additional resources, and yet for seven months they've still said no. So I don't know why or what the reasons are for doing this. I just know that that's what's taking place. And, and the media plays no has no weight at all on our operations. Other than maybe they influence Congress and then Congress does, you know, their thing. But but I, I get your point that, look, you know, you guys might be stretched in resources and you'll have eight people instead of 20 people for a certain operation, but you're still going to do that operation. Correct. We're still going to run with it as best we can with the, with the resources and the manpower that we do have. And, you know, if we need to adjust fire in a certain direction, then, of course, we always do. One, one other thing, if, if um, obviously, again, the, the catalyst for this whole thing that really started a year, 15 months ago, and then just intensified at various stages was policies, whether it's florists, whether it's, you know, some of the quasi-asylum, although I don't even know how many are even asking for it now, but that, you know, kind of maybe jump-started it, um, the detention space. But let's say we get all that out of the way, the policy side, just in terms of resources and money. What are the things that you feel works well that you need more of? I've heard from some people, canines. I mean, what type of assets do you feel you guys need? For, for our operational uh, picture, to, for, to actually help us with uh, operational control of the border? or Yeah, exactly, exactly. Meaning, assuming, let's say we would, you know, stop the policies, which are, you know, the florist, the asylum stuff, that's, that's the big thing. But just in terms of money, resources, funding, um, we mentioned the ICE detention space, which certainly affects you directly, but just within Border Patrol itself, what sort of assets you feel work and that you need more of? So all our assets uh, play a part in everything that we do. Our, our canines are, are an awesome, awesome tool. I used to be a, a canine handler myself here with Border Patrol. Uh, and it's just an amazing tool. We need more of those. Our horse patrol. Our horse patrol helps us in, in, in heavy brush areas where we can't get to with our vehicles. We can't get to even with all-terrain vehicles uh, or with dirt bikes or anything of that matter. So our horse patrol, I mean, everything we have, our riverine, that's, the river is, I mean, it's, it's a lot of river out there, and we need more riverine units to be able to cover, to be able to back up a, a a boat that's being rocked or to be able to assist with, uh, I mean, how many times do you see on the media that, that Border Patrol agents rescued an individual from drowning? That happens on a daily basis as well. Yep. So every time, any time a particular incident is taking place, it's a domino effect, right? So we have to uh, send our resources and our assets to that location. And of course, we're drawing them from somewhere else. So, the more the merrier, but of course we don't want a, a huge influx of just assets coming to the, the river and just piling up. Uh, that's not where, what we're asking for. It's, it's a totalitarian, a totality of assets and the resources. I mean, of course we need the wall, we need the technology, we need the infrastructure for the roads. There's parts of the river that we can't get to. Uh, I think I've discussed with you uh, a while back that I could be in one point of the river 
and I could be watching a group of people cross the river about 50 yards from me, whether upriver or downriver, but I can't get to it because of the thick brush or a refuge mm. being there. So I can't traverse laterally. And so we need that infrastructure. We need those roads uh, to be allowed so that we can do so and be able to respond uh, in a timely manner. Otherwise, by the time I go around by the thick brush, that group is gone. And it's and funny. So- it's one of, one of the things that you're talking about, the, the brush. I learned this um, recently that it seems like the area you need the wall is most in the areas you don't have. In other words, much more so in the RGV than, let's say, in Arizona. I and and um, my friend at Texas DPS surprised me of this, and I because I, I I didn't know the geography that well, and I looked at a map and I said, "Holy heck!" You know, we think of the border as kind of a straight line. You know, on a crude map, you'd make it a straight line, but you look at that river, and if you look at the linear miles of the bends, so I looked at a place, uh, Los Ebenos. It's it's enveloped by multiple bends in the river where you could have the smugglers and the cartels do their operations, and they could hit you from three different sides. So it's a ton of mileage there, right? Correct. And and that's actually true. You mentioned Los Amanos. Los Amanos is probably one of our, our most heaviest areas with uh, traffics regarding family units. And I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming there. And the entire river winds. So sure, we could be at one bend uh, dealing with one situation and the cartel can be bringing traffic through, which they do. Uh, at another bend, either upriver from our location or downriver from us, it happens daily. It's it's just one of their their tactics that they use every single day against us. Yeah, no, 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 no doubt about it. And and they have people on our side with two way radios, um, you know, encrypted radios where local law enforcement don't even have them. And they, uh, I, I hear that they even sit at airports. And they monitor when the helicopters take off, whether they're the feds or Texas DPS, and um, and then they t- you know monitor that to the cartels to shut down the operation there and go elsewhere. And it's um, I don't know. To me, that tells me they're the ones with the operational control in these areas. Well, so we're, we're talking about a group of individuals or an organization like right, the cartels that have an endless amount of resources and endless amount of. I mean, they have no budget. They have all the money in the world uh, compared to us who have been asking for money for seven months. It's, I mean, it, how do you, how do you counter that? No, no, exactly. And, and, and again, you know, I want you guys to listen to this conversation and understand the context of Congress's debate. 100% of their debate on funding is all over detention centers and it's all over the treatment of, of illegals, but not a, you know, whether, whatever you believe on that, there's not a single ounce of discussion, much less provisions on holding the line itself, the cartels, the drugs, the smuggling, the human trafficking. We never hear that. I, I, I just, it drives me nuts. And, uh, that's what you guys are up against doing a lot with very little. One final question. I, I know like, you know, I'm, I'm getting 10 years worth out of you. So I, this will be the last question. Um, we're, we're just at an hour here. I, I was always very confused about the numbers, you know, whether we need, you know, we talk about assets, but actual agents. So, you know, what a lot of people say is, look, you know, Border Patrol has tripled in, in recent years. And yet somehow, even before this, last 15 months or so. Let's just, 
you know, this obviously it just chews everyone up, no matter how many agents you have. But it seems like even before this, despite the fact that it's gone up to 20,000 as an, as an institution from much less in the nineties, it seems like there never were a ton of people on the line. Is there a lot of bureaucratic waste that could be dealt with, or is that just how any agency works? Uh, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, but I, at least not in that regard, but I can tell you, uh, CBP just released our numbers for June, the month of June, uh, earlier this morning. Right. And with regards to our manpower and, and the agents on the line, as you're asking, one of our highest points in 2014 was the month of May in 2014, right? When we had that huge unaccompanied child influx. In the month of May 2014, we had total apprehensions along the southwest border. 68,800 individuals were apprehended in the month of May alone. This was back then. This is, what, five years ago, right? And, and that was considered crazy. And that was considered crazy. Yeah. And so, of course, even back then, we were asking for resources. We were asking for more manpower, right? And so with regards to the topic on manpower and having more agents, this last May, just a month and a half ago, we apprehended along the entire southwest border 144,000 individuals more than double what we caught yep. in 2014. So anybody can say, okay, well, we keep giving you more boots on the ground. Okay, but also look at our numbers and what we're dealing with. Mm. And, and again, it's it, not it's, just quantitatively, it's qualitatively too. It's that you're correct. dealing with, it used to be a single adults. So um, yeah, you did have you know years of high numbers in the late '90s, early 2000s, but qualitatively, it wasn't like this. No, because back then, even in the late '90s and early 2000s, the vast majority—I would say maybe 90%—I think is what CBPS posted—was Mexican nationals. So they, we could return them back. Now, it's it's changed. The 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 group that we're dealing with are not Mexican nationals. They're other than Mexican, and of course, we're in the situation we're in where ICE cannot take custody of them from us. And so, of course, it lags on the deportation or the removal process. No, no doubt about it. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry for the long workout here. I probably didn't warn you enough, and I hope I didn't dissuade you from coming back again. <laughs> but I hope uh, I hope you're willing to, you know, give us a briefing from time to time, you know, what you're up against. And, you know, so people could appreciate walking in the shoes of a border agent. Um, border agent lives do matter indeed. And folks, you could follow, um, make sure to follow uh, Sergio at Veteran Tinoco on Twitter. Veteran Tinoco, T-I-N-O-C-O, we'll link to that, as well as purchase his book. It's a very inspirational story. Um, Proud American, the Migrant Soldier and Agent. Sergio, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Take care. God bless. Now, folks, I am just overwhelmed by that and i and i hope you were as well in a good way um i never thought i would ever get such an interview usually we get a retired agent or if it's an active duty one you know we had one talking about the northern border which is less political um that was very very generous of him in in many ways and and i i don't know if all of you fully appreciate why that that he was willing to give over that much information and that's why, look, I had a lot of other things I wanted to ask, but, you know, I just, 
I, I don't want to punish a good deed. You know, guys want to sit and talk with me on the record, on the air, and I want to put him in uncomfortable situations. Um, he's active duty. He's not, you know, DHS secretary. He's not a political appointee and he's not a member of Congress. So, you know, he doesn't make these decisions. But it's just so sad that we don't have more people, some more of my colleagues, more, frankly, Republicans in Congress willing to counter this by holding hearings um, with stories like Sergio's. And, and they allow the other side to just lie and lie and lie in no context. Like, oh, there's just people, harmless people just come in. I mean, unbelievable things. Each bit of that interview, there's so much to digest. I haven't fully digested it. But I hope you guys do. Send me your comments and questions. Let me know if you have more questions for him. We could have him back if he's if he's willing. I hope I didn't wear him out with a you know, full-hour interview. Um and, you know, I could ask him privately. And if it's something he's willing to give over publicly, I could give it over to you. Uh, but but that was, you know, it, it just this is this is not even right or left. It's just it's straight up. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Our laws require full operational control. Why is there no focus on funding and policies to get operational control, not to empower the cartels with more amnesty? Doesn't make any sense. Everyone understood this in both parties until recently, even in 2014. Remember when he said we had 68,000 apprehensions, still well below the 104,000 now, and Obama administration shut it down within a few months. Here were 15 months or so of this crisis and, and counting. So anyway, again, there's so much more to talk about on the courts and and the census. We're going to save that for tomorrow but I hope you enjoyed this show. Bookmark it, listen two, three times, and send this show to 15 of your friends and family. That's your assignment. Send it to everyone. Anyone who is skeptical, oh, Border Patrol, they're mean punks. You know, this is a guy who has a true American immigrant story that the media and the political elites refuse to champion. Anyway, God bless everyone. God bless our border patrol, our ICE agents, our military that are placed in impossible situations. May God give the political leaders some sort of guidance that the sacrifice of these people shouldn't go to waste. Till tomorrow, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 